In light of our upcoming Thanksgiving holiday, I'm going to break with our work through John chapter 14 and turn our attention to the matter of cultivating a heart of gratitude. And I want you to know that as I was preparing the sermon, I did not have anyone in mind in our church other than myself. I always feel like when you break with a series you're working on and preach an individual sermon, somebody out there is going to think, oh, he's preaching at me. And uh, that is not the case. So if you feel convicted, that's the work of the Spirit, not me. All right? But uh, I really did have to reflect on my own life as I was working through this passage. The fact is, we have an enormous quantity of possessions compared to most people in the world today. And in fact, most people through all world history. If you were here on Wednesday night, you know that James warned us about our addiction to possessions. And he came down incredibly hard on the wealthy, those who exploit the poor and even murder to make themselves more wealthy. So I want to know, how is it that we can live in an affluent society and at the same time cultivate a true heart of gratitude? So can we turn to Matthew chapter 6 this morning? Matthew chapter 6, we will be with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I've been reading quite a lot lately about Palestinian Christians and all that they've endured for the last many, many years. And it's interesting how often the Sermon on the Mount comes up. This is a sermon that's very, very important to Palestinian Christians. And actually, for precisely the opposite reason, it needs to be important to us. They have experienced a great amount of persecution and suffering and opportunities to turn the other cheek. And for us, Jesus is going to warn us about our wealth, something most Palestinian Christians do not have. And so there's something definitely in this for us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Now, before we launch the text, I want to talk to you about tulips. And I'm not talking about Calvinism. In 1593, a professor of botany from Vienna brought to Leiden, Holland, an unusual collection of plant bulbs that came originally from Turkey. The Dutch were particularly fascinated with these bulbs because they could produce all kinds of wonderful flowers. When a thief broke into the professor's house and stole the bulbs and began selling them at a lower price, a buying frenzy started, which lasted over a decade. And then, from 1634 to 1637, the tulip craze grew exponentially. Charles McKay chronicled the wild tulip fervor in his book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Some of these bulbs succumb to a virus that produce a spectacular array of colors or flames, as they were called in the flowers. These infected bulbs were called bazaars and became highly coveted. Soon a whole market developed around purchasing tulip bulbs, leading to widespread predictions on prices and ordinary investors sinking fortunes into the tulip market. People began trading land and jewels and furniture and family heirlooms to purchase tulip bulbs. A sailor recently returned from sea and unaware of the craze visited a local restaurant. Seeing a tulip bulb on the counter and thinking it an onion, he cut into it and wound up in debtor's prison. 
But in 1637, tulip mania reached its peak. People began doubting whether the prices could go any higher, and so they began to sell. And soon everyone wanted to sell, and the prices came tumbling down. The government stepped in, claiming there was no reason to be alarmed. But the tumbling snowball had gathered so much momentum that widespread panic ensued, and the market crashed. And the incident introduced to the Western world a phenomenon that has repeated itself several times and haunts investors today, the phenomenon of a stock market crash. A lifetime of savings wiped out in days because of foolish speculation and market timing. But the phenomenon also illustrates an inherent human tendency that really dates to the dawn of time a desire for instantaneous, permanent, material satisfaction, a desire for financial security. It's the same phenomenon that drove a mass movement of speculators to California beginning in 1849. This is the year in which gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill. In fact, not since the Crusades that the Western world witnessed such a diaspora of people. Gold fever expanded San Francisco's 1848 population of 812 people to 30,000 within just three years. In fact, in 1849 alone, some 90,000 men went off to work in the gold fields, and subsequent years brought similar numbers. The trek across the country was so brutal that one in five 49ers, as they were called, died of starvation, disease, or peril along the way. One out of five. Just trying to get to California died. It all began with a little nugget about the size of a pencil eraser. The 5th century Greek poet Pindar said, gold is a child of Zeus. The mind of man is devoured by this supreme possession. These examples are spectacular for sure, but isn't it true that even if we're not addicted to tulip bulbs or gold or tech stocks, that we can all imagine having just a little bit more? And maybe just a little bit more and a little bit more? That's human nature. Today's text is one of those passages that we instantaneously want to start qualifying. One of those passages that you read and you say, well, Jesus didn't mean quite that, did he? It makes us uncomfortable. Is Jesus really saying we can't invest? We shouldn't have a 401k? It's not okay to have an IRA? Is Jesus forbidding any kind of wealth wealth acquisition? Well, let's approach our passage with open hearts to receive his word and avoid the tendency to immediately qualify the passage. Believe me, when I read it, I want to qualify it. But my fear in doing so is that I would actually blunt the force of the passage. Now, Jesus will offer a qualification but only after we feel the full force of the passage. So you have to wait for the qualification until the end, all right? So Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus says, 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, can you imagine coming to Jesus as your financial advisor? You come to him for some basic investment advice. And you know that when you first open up a retirement account, it's easy to just feel overwhelmed by all the options, large cap, mid cap, small cap stocks, an endless variety of bonds, indexes, ETFs, securities, annuities, commodities, a countless variety of mutual funds, a bewildered array of fees and strategies. It's like, how do you even make sense of all this? I have a very dear friend who is a very accomplished economist. He actually did his PhD right here in Clemson and went on to Harvard after that for postdoctoral work. And he was for some time the chief economist for the Bank of America. And he has had a very, very successful career. And for years, I've sort of gently needled him about teaching economics at BJU. And here's what I tell him. I tell him, look, I don't know a whole lot about markets, but I can tell you this, that in the end, there are only two kinds of investments you can make. You can invest in stuff, and you can invest in people. And he says, Brent, don't do that to me. (laughs) Now, let me hasten to say that I believe the Lord has called him to do exactly what he's doing. He really has an outstanding testimony for Christ and his profession, and he uses his resources to invest in the Lord's work, and he does invest in people, so I'm just needling him, as I say. But what I say to him in jest does actually reflect the point that Jesus is making. Ultimately, we do have two investment options. That's it, just two. We can build up treasures on earth, Or we can lay them up in heaven heaven by investing in kingdom work. And that's it. Those are your options. Verse 19, verse 20, lay up treasures in heaven or treasures on earth. We probably have all heard of the famous Egyptian pharaoh King Tut. Anyone know why he's so famous? Actually, in ancient Egypt, he was a relatively obscure pharaoh an unimportant king. He's actually only famous because his tomb was one of the few that actually survived partially unplundered from the ancient world. It is estimated that nearly all the tombs in the Valley of the Kings were looted, get this, within 100 years of the Pharaoh's death. 100 years, they're all emptied out. Well, these Egyptians, of course, went to great efforts to surround their mummified pharaohs with incredible wealth, sending them through the portal of death into the next life, supposedly, with gifts to the gods. But in verse 19, Jesus says, thieves break in and steal. Those tombs are just all plundered. Wouldn't it have been better for those pharaohs to invest their monies in something that had eternal value? Think of that. What good is it really doing buried down there under the pyramid? 
Notice in verse 21 how Jesus, as our financial advisor, is after something very different than material goods. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is he after? He is after our hearts. You may remember from years ago when we worked through the Sermon on the Mount that the heart is the issue that Jesus comes back to over and over and over again. It really is the heartbeat of the whole sermon. In fact, all of Jesus' preaching. The Beatitudes, if you recall, just bored right into our hearts. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. That's what matters. Jesus used the law to really bore into our hearts. It's not enough to say, well, I don't murder, I don't commit adultery. The heart has to be free from hatred and free from lust. What matters is the heart. As the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus, Jeremiah 31, is writing the law on our hearts. And now he's looking at our possessions and he wants to know where is your heart? Is your heart set on the acquisition of material goods? Or is it interested in laying up treasures in heaven? Is your heart fixated on tulip bulbs which are easily stolen? Do we have a fixation with loading our coffins with gold? Warren Buffett said rather humorously, gold gets dug up out of the ground in Africa or someplace. Then we melt it down, dig another hole, bury it again, and pay people to stand around and guard it. That doesn't make a lot of sense. We've probably all read the stories of explorers and pirates on the high seas looking for buried treasure. They've got that ever-elusive treasure map for the end of the world that they're trying to find the treasure on Do you ever wonder why that treasure is hidden away in some hole in the ground for no one to find? Well, it's not really much of a reward for someone who stashed it away, is it not? Once you have it, then you worry constantly about somebody stealing it. You try to protect it, and you're just worried about it all the time. Jesus is actually offering to us a stunning alternative that doesn't have to be buried in a hole in the ground. We can make a permanent investment that's guaranteed never to be touched by corruption or cunning thieves. In verse 20, he's emphatic. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now, let's really let that statement sink in. Excuse me. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. If anyone other than Jesus had made this statement, we probably would be very dismissive of it. And that's because it sounds self-indulgent, does it not? It sounds self-interested. Should we really be doing good on this earth for the sake of putting away rewards in heaven? Isn't that self-serving? We actually stumble at this verse because it calls into question our motives. But Jesus, friends, cannot be mistaken. It is perfectly appropriate to think about putting away rewards in heaven. That's got to be appropriate. He wouldn't have said it. But here's where we really stumble. 
we sometimes view serving God and serving self as mutually exclusive, as if you've got to choose one or the other. And sometimes that misunderstanding comes from verse 24, and we'll come to that verse momentarily. But in Christian circles, serving God is sometimes viewed as some kind of ultimate sacrifice. Children in a youth group are sometimes taught that there's a kind of ranking of careers. I mean, there's the lowest tier. That's all the ordinary jobs that people have. The next tier up is you sacrifice. You go in the ministry of some sort. And then you go up a step from that, and you really sacrifice, and you're called to preach. And that's a sign that you're really, truly spiritual. There's even a higher level, and that's surrendered to the mission field. But not just any mission field. You've got to go get yourself martyred, right? And then you're like truly spiritual, right? That's the true sign, and anyone who reached that top tier, you know, couldn't possibly be thinking about laying up rewards in heaven. I mean, they're too spiritual for all that. Well, is that really what Jesus is saying? I have immense respect for the Wilds Christian Camp and Conference Center. I really enjoy what it does, and I have benefited from that ministry, and I have many friends and acquaintances in that ministry. In fact, we support the Indians out of the Wilds. But there is a phrase that I have heard from time to time come to the wild, coming out of the wilds that actually could possibly be misunderstood. And the phrase is, just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. I understand the spirit behind that phrase. We are often confronted with a deliberate choice between obeying God and choosing the lust of the flesh. However, let's be very careful not to conclude that pleasing God always involves some sort of self-denial. That's how sometimes we think about this passage and that statement. Pleasing God actually is the very best and most rewarding and joyful thing you can possibly do. Laying up treasure in heaven is supposed to be rewarding. And that's the whole point. We should enjoy this. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And here's the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God. And what else? And to enjoy Him forever. Friends, when we serve God, there is great joy and satisfaction in doing so. It's not a life of misery and drudgery. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about restoring us into His image and likeness. The gospel is about restoring joy and beauty and goodness to our humanity that was lost in Adam. God is making all things new in Jesus Christ. And as Christians, once we have accepted the saving work of Christ on the cross, we begin to experience that joy and that restoration through the process of sanctification, even though it may be painful at times. That is true. But Jesus, in his incarnation, came to restore our humanity. And Jesus, in his resurrection, remained permanently human. And Jesus, think about this, is the most joyful human being in the universe today. Think of that. Jesus is the most joyful human being anywhere in the universe today. So when we are recreated in Jesus Christ and we live to serve His kingdom and lay up treasure in heaven, 
We're not choosing between ourselves and God. We're actually choosing God. And we're discovering in Him the most wonderful life possible. Now, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel, which I've been critical of in previous context. But when Jesus tells us to consider our investment options, He's not saying you have to choose between a life of drudgery and despair and following God in miserable poverty. Rather, he's telling us, look, you need to be productive, happy, spirit-filled people living for Christ's kingdom. Serve God. The investments are eternal. And that's what he's after. Now, in verses 22 through 23, Jesus will offer an illustration that has proven a little difficult to interpret. He says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, the precise interpretation of these verses has proved perhaps a little elusive. But let's see whether we can arrive at a reasonable interpretation with three observations. Number one, Jesus is clearly giving us two options. There's light and there's darkness. Now, in the preceding verses, he gave us two options as well, treasures in heaven or treasures on earth. And in verse 24, he's going to give us another two options, two kinds of master. So contextually, this illustration seems to be keeping with Jesus' deliberate contrast between investing below and investing above the two options. Secondly, in Jewish culture, as in many other cultures, bright eyes were considered a mark of happiness and prosperity. Eyes communicate a great deal about people. Sparkling, engaging eyes communicate friendliness. We've all seen Christians who have grown old and their bodies are worn, but their eyes are still smiling. You know people like that? However, menacing, scowling, shifting eyes, eyes that refuse to make eye contact, communicate a sinister purpose. Jesus seems, seems to be pointing to bright eyes as an indication of a bright inner man, an inner man that's full of light rather than a heart of darkness. And thirdly, what we see with our eyes can, in fact, motivate our behavior. You've seen it, and now you've got to have it. You know how that works? You've seen it, and now you've got to have it. You didn't want it before. As soon as you've seen it, you've got to have it. Your eyes trigger your heart to respond in particular ways. Lust is triggered by the eye gate. Would you listen to how Genesis 3 reads? The serpent said, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Think of that. Satan's temptation passed right through the eye gate and plunged Adam and Eve into great darkness. 
You've seen it, and now you've got to have it. In The Hobbit, J.R. Tolkien illustrates what Jesus is warning against. If you've read The Hobbit, you know it follows the story of a group of dwarves joined by Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit, in their quest to return to the Lonely Mountain. The Lonely Mountain is the once proud capital of the Dwarvish Kingdom. Thorin Oakenshield, king under the mountain, is heir to the throne. But the great kingdom under the mountain has been taken. It was taken 100 years early, 150 years earlier by Smog, the dreadful dragon. And that dragon sleeps upon an unimaginably vast treasure of gold. Thorin Oakenshield is a brave warrior. But along the way, he is helped out by numerous others, including the elves, humans, and of course, Bilbo Baggins and Gandalf the Grey, the wizard. And in the end, it was a man named Bard the Bowman who succeeds in killing Smog the dragon and liberating the Lonely Mountain. But when Bard and all the others who helped Thor and Oakenshield complete his quest demanded their share of the treasure, guess what happened? Thorin is struck with gold lust. He has seen the vast treasure, and he is unwilling to part with any of it. The light shimmering off those gold coins just plunges his whole heart into darkness, and he begins to demonstrate strange, erratic behaviors. Why? It's because the treasure owns him. The treasure owns him. The treasure that delights the eyes will possess the heart. Now, if that is the correct interpretation, it fits precisely then with verse 24. Jesus says, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the surface reading of this verse is possibly a little bit confusing. Jesus is not talking about employment in a modern sense. We all know it's possible to have two jobs and two bosses. That's not what he's talking about. In the ancient world, when slavery was an existing and legally acceptable part of Roman economy, servants or slaves were owned by one, not two masters. Jesus here is talking about ownership. You will be owned. You will be governed. You will be controlled either by God or by money. That's what he's saying. Money, possessions, worldly goods can come to own a person. His or her whole life is consumed by acquisition. Every last golden coin on the Lonely Mountain is mine, says Thor. And it's all mine. In fact, the King James Version says that we cannot serve God and mammon. And in Milton's Paradise Lost, mammon is actually the name of a fallen angel. Money like a demon can possess a person. Many years ago, I was on a flight from Baltimore to Denver, and in the seat to my right was a highly intelligent, well-educated, wealthy Hindu man from India. He had attended one of India's elite universities, and he came to America for graduate school and was subsequently hired by Microsoft. 
He then started his own company in a high-tech high computer industry, and he was enormously successful. And I'm guessing he was mid to late 30s. And as I conversed with him, he explained to me that he worshipped Lakshmi. Lakshmi is the Hindu goddess of wealth. And I was a little taken aback, actually, by this brilliant modern mind worshipping this ancient tribal deity. But he claimed she was making him very wealthy. And I asked him whether Lakshmi could help him if our plane suddenly plummeted to the ground and we were all lost. And he said, no. And I said, well, then can I explain to you my Christian faith and the power of Christ's resurrection? And he said, certainly. And by the end of our conversation, he told me he wanted to embrace Jesus Christ as his Savior. But then I asked, are you willing to give up Lakshmi and trust Christ alone for salvation no matter what the cost? And he said, I can embrace both. So I went back to the scripture with him, and I explained everything once again. And I told him, look, if you're going to accept Jesus Christ, you have to accept him exclusively. So I asked him, are you prepared to accept Jesus Christ exclusively? And he said, yes. But then I asked him, are you giving up Lakshmi? And he said, no. I will not abandon her. All right. Oftentimes, in the Eastern mindset, it is perfectly acceptable to hold mutually contradictory truths. Right, Joseph? You can not. Joseph doesn't do this, but it's possible. <laughs> we don't think Joseph. Maybe he does. All right. Jesus is saying in verse twenty-four, "This is impossible. You you will be owned by money. You will be owned by money, or God. Not both." Now, a moment ago, I made a comment about the wild slogan, just two choices on the shelf, choosing God or choosing self. All right? Now, I commented that pleasing God does not equate to a life of drudgery. However, if that slogan refers to our choice between two masters, then it's exactly right. It's exactly right. Does, do, do we have a choice between choosing God and choosing self, Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. We will be owned by God or by money, by God or by our possessions. Now, I'm sure just about every one of us could give examples of someone who is owned by his or her possessions. You know someone like them? I know someone like that. A person is just owned by her possessions. But isn't it true that it's very easy for all of us to slip into this mindset? When you purchase a new home, how long does it take before every room is full? Yeah, my home included. Remember when we first moved to our house, we, we doubled our square footage, and before long, it's like, oh, the whole thing is full. Where did that all come from? Part of it's kids, but all right. How, how much stuff has been sitting in your attic for years? How many times have you cleaned out your garage and just couldn't quite convince yourself to throw something away and it sits there for another five, ten years? You know how that works, right? Did you know the average American home has tripled in size over the last 50 years, but still one in ten Americans rent off-site storage? Off-site storage has been the fastest-growing segment of the commercial real estate industry for the last four decades. A British research group discovered that an average 10-year-old owns 238 toys and plays with only 12 daily. 3.1% of the world's children live in America and own 40% of the toys in the world. 
I went on the website of the container store, and they advertise, quote, hundreds of products to help you get organized, and that's our product. We've got so much stuff, we don't even know how to organize it. The home organization industry is estimated to grow 10% every year. So how much stuff do we have? And just how happy are we? We Just answer those two questions. Think about our American culture. How much stuff do we have? And how happy are we? The fact is, when you start down the road toward material acquisition, believing that happiness lies at the end of that road, you will discover that road has no end. You just keep going and keep on acquiring, and that road has no end. So, what are we going to do with Jesus' words today, friends? Is Jesus trying to wreck our Thanksgiving holiday? Am I trying to do that this morning? No, I'm actually not trying to do that at all. All right? Is Jesus actually condemning wealthy people? And the answer is no. That's actually not what he's doing. Is Jesus condemning retirement savings? No. That's not what he's doing. Is Jesus calling us to a life of poverty and austerity? No. Can we measure people's spirituality in reverse proportion to their net worth? No. The fact is, throughout all church history, though, many Christians have actually read Jesus this way. In fact, the whole practice of monasticism followed Jesus very, very literally in the sermon. St. Anthony, the most influential early monk, inherited a large estate from his parents. But he gave it all away and went out to the desert in Egypt thinking that he could truly follow Christ's teaching. But his biographer, Athanasius, keenly observed, you can take the man out of the world, but you can't take the world out of the man. You can't get the world out of his heart just by putting him in a desert. Anthony still discovered avarice and greed in his heart while practicing the monastic lifestyle out in the desert. So then what is Jesus getting at? Is Jesus just condemning all wealth? Actually, not at all. Follow this very carefully. In verses 19 through 24, the verses we just considered, coupled with verses 25 through 32, which we will not read, Jesus deals with our material possessions. And in verses 19 through 24, he focuses on ownership of our stuff. And in verse 25, he focuses on our anxiety. Because here's what happens. You talk about people's stuff, and they get really anxious, right? They get really anxious when people start talking about your stuff. Now, after dealing with those two issues, we come to verse 33. And here is Jesus' summary perspective, and this is really crucial. Look at the text. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we are truly seeking Christ's kingdom, he says certain things will be added. Well, what things? The two words, these things, actually refer to everything he's been talking about. He's been talking about our material possessions. He's been talking about the wonderful gifts that we have from God. These things will be added to you so long as you seek his kingdom first. Right? 
Now, frankly, we all need material things in order to survive. And Jesus is not opposing any kind of material possessions whatsoever, but he is, in fact, referring to our priorities. That's what he's after. Our first priority is seeking the kingdom of God. And when you do that, sometimes the Lord blesses people with incredible abundance. And that's because he knows that he can really trust them as good stewards. Now, that doesn't mean if somebody has less than you that they're somehow not obeying God. Not at all. All right? But Jesus really here is after our hearts. Our priority has to be seeking first his kingdom. And let me just point out also, and I did this on Wednesday night, that elsewhere the scripture does not condemn wealth, but the scripture tells us how we're supposed to use the things that we have. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, charge them to get rid of it all. No, that's not what he says. Charge them not to be haughty, that's proud, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Yeah, the moth comes, the rust comes, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is the source of all of our goodness. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold on that which is truly life. Giving, generosity, using your resources for God's goodness and God's kingdom, that's true living. That's what Paul is saying. Now, of course, the passage implies that Timothy actually knew wealthy Christians. And again, it doesn't tell them to go get rid of everything. But again, you can take the man out of the world, but you can't take the world out of the man. Look at your heart. Your heart is what matters. The solution is to be rich in good works. And what's interesting about the text is that it implies that when doing good with your wealth below, it is a definite means of laying up treasure above. Think of that. When you're doing good with your wealth below, that's a means of laying up treasure above. Now, our instinctive tendency is to compare ourselves with everyone else when we hear verses like this. And so long as we come in below the average compared to everybody else in the room, the passage must not apply to me. All right? Now, again, I didn't have anybody at all in mind except myself. All right, all week long, I deliberately did not think of anybody in our church. This sermon is not for anyone in particular. I'm coming after you, nothing like that. All right, and I do not see our church as a, as, as a stingy church at all. This is a very, very generous church, no doubt about it. All right, but I just want us to, again, as we approach Thanksgiving, just think about Christ's teaching and let's remember who the wealthy are. You want to know who the wealthy are? Well, let's compare ourselves to the world. Shall we do so? There are six billion people in the world today who will survive on less than 13,000 a year. So where do you fit in? Six billion people in the world that will survive on less than 13,000 a year. And no kids, I'm not telling your parents to lift your allowance to 13,000. No way. All right. <laughs> We're talking about the, the average family income. Where do you fit in? What do you fit in? All right. And finally, let's just not forget Jesus' overall message in the Sermon on the Mount. We saw it in verse 21. Jesus is after our hearts. Your net worth is not the issue. Your heart is the issue. 
So can I encourage us all as we think about this week of Thanksgiving to really look at our hearts and to examine whether they are devoted to seeking first the kingdom of God. When they're seeking first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. And when you're seeking first the kingdom of God, you actually will lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And there's nothing wrong with that. Who are we going to serve? What are we going to do with our stuff? Right? The Lord doesn't condemn it, but where is your heart? That's the question. Shall we pray together? And can we take just a moment and really examine our own hearts and make sure that we are thinking biblically and responsibly about all the wonderful benefits that we have from the Lord and just launch into the Thanksgiving week with a heart that is rightly set on God's Word, God's truth. Can we do that for just a moment here? Just thank God for what we have.